Welcome to the podcast, Inform Your Consumerism, where we unveil what goes on behind the scenes for producing common products. My name is Christina Lampert. I'm the founder of the Sustainial Network, which is a social channel dedicated to the sustainable millennial lifestyle. And I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Sawinski, who has experience working on some of the country's most well-respected farms. He now leads operations at GoodSam, a CPG company that produces food that's good for farmers and the planet. The reality is that consumers around the world are inherently disconnected to the things that they consume every single day. And so throughout each episode, Ryan and I will be exploring the life cycle of common products so that we can truly understand and appreciate how people and the planet are impacted before the product greets us, the consumer, the shopper, at the shelf. These conversations are designed to enable you to make more informed decisions that are in alignment with your values, whatever they may be. And albeit virtually, connect you with the humans and the Earth's resources that are the single reason we're able to consume these vital products every day in the first place. So with that, let's inform your consumerism. On today's episode, we'll be learning all about pork. Before we get started with our guest, I wanted to just share a few facts that I've learned over the years that made Ryan and I really want to dedicate an entire episode to it. The first one, kind of a fun fact, hogs or pigs are actually not native to the Americas and arrived here on Columbus's second trip. Fast forward to today, where pork is now the most widely consumed protein across the globe, accounting for 40% of all meat consumption in 2022. Then, if we zone into the U.S., more than half of all American households always have bacon in the kitchen. And unfortunately, this large-scale demand for conventional pork products does not come without an environmental toll. It's estimated that four slices of bacon equates to 165 gallons of water use. When we think about water use, right, we're not just thinking about the water required to help the pig grow and survive, but we also have to account for all of the water that's used to water the crops that are ultimately produced into the feed that is fed to the pig. And on top of this, we also know that conventionally produced pork is also one of the top four greenhouse gas generating animal products along with lamb, beef, and cheese. In fact, the annual American appetite for bacon produces 49.6 billion pounds of carbon dioxide equivalent emissions per year. And you might be asking yourself, like, where does that come from? What's causing that? And one of the main reasons why pork is such a big contributor has to do with their manure. (laughs) As their manure decomposes, and they have a lot of it, nitrous oxide and methane are released into our atmosphere. I think it's worth spending a second here also unpacking that. So if you're not familiar with nitrous oxide, it's a greenhouse gas that actually warms our earth 273 times more powerfully compared to carbon dioxide. So extremely potent. And get this, it stays in our atmosphere for 121 years. 
Methane warms our Earth 28 times more powerfully compared to carbon dioxide and lasts in our atmosphere for 12 years. I think it's also worth spending a moment here sharing some facts as it relates to the relationship between potential pork products and cancer. I avidly study and research food products that are put on the International Agency of Research on Cancer's carcinogen list. Now, if you've looked at this list, there's many types of carcinogens listed. But if the food product is classified as type 1, it means that it's a known human carcinogen, proven to cause cancer in humans, meaning that there's sufficient evidence and that there's been a causal relationship established. And so when I look at this list, processed meat is a type 1 carcinogen. And when we think about pork products that fall into this category of processed meat, we can think about prosciutto, we can think about pork-based deli meat, we can think about bacon, pork roll, um, and things like that. Now, with that in mind, we have so much more to learn. And we're fortunate enough to be joined by Dr. Dale W. Roseboom, who is the professor and associate chair for stakeholder relations in South Campus Animal Farms in the Animal Science Department at Michigan State University. Dale's going to spend some time with us, really getting us familiar with what happens on the farm, how a pig is raised, how it gets turned into a pork product, so we can have all of this information really in our minds and really appreciate where everything's coming from. I mean, yeah, what is your background? How did you get into this? How did you get so close to pigs in general? I grew up on a farm in western Minnesota um, and have been around pigs and other animals, farm animals, uh, pets my whole life. I, I've never had a day where I haven't been around animals. Um, so in a way, I'm, I'm privileged to have had that experience. And it has um, contributed, obviously, to uh, my my career um, and and quite a bit of my perspective and my background. Um, it's led to my exper experiences, and so um, that I have to attribute um, and know that that's contributed to what I what I've become. But um, as I sit here, I'm on the faculty in the Animal Science Department at Michigan State University. I've been here for three decades and have uh, uh, primary responsibilities over that time. I stop and I think and I say, wow, I've taught introductory swine management. We call it introductory swine management, but it's raising pigs. And then I teach advanced swine management. I've done both those courses now uh, throughout my career. And um, I just think, wow, and uh, um, that uh, I, I've met so many students um, in my classes and I've seen them go on to various careers, some involving animals, some not, uh, and, and I'm happy to have them all. And I've, I've enjoyed that. And uh, so um, I, not only teaching, but I, I've been able to work with farmers. Uh, I have what they call an extension appointment uh, a lot of the land grant universities in the country, um, way back in the 1800s, late 1800s, uh, got federal funding, which said teach rural, teach farmers, teach communities, take what you're learning at the universities and disseminate it outward. And so that mission of extension continues. I've had a 
half my appointments been that and so it's great it's a it's a wonderful job because you teach but you you learn you learn so much when you go out and spend time with farmers and on the farm and and, and so you just gain so much in, in the exchange the exchange is beneficial mutually beneficial so that's been good and then i do research uh, i am a researcher i enjoy it i love asking new questions like what if what if this and what if we just change the amount of fiber in the baby pig diet their first diet is is that got a health benefit to them do they resist disease better do they grow faster um, I've got a graduate student, my um, last graduate student um, is finishing up a study on what we call beneficial fiber uh, for a, a young piglet. So I, I like to ask questions like that, have done that throughout my career. And, and so um, I have thoroughly enjoyed um, the, the academic setting I've been able to work in. Thanks, Dale. And I'm also, I mean, this is like kind of an icebreaker question before we go into the meat, no pun intended, but what is your affinity to animals and to oh. pigs, right? Like, I feel like, okay, I'm in a city. I just see people with their dogs and it's like, oh, such a cute dog. I love this dog. But what does that look like in your world where you're working with livestock and it's a totally different model and totally different relationship? Very good question. Um, and so my evaluation of that about myself has come, like I said, after growing up with them, I didn't know different. I, I didn't know what it would be like to not have animals around me and interact with them and respect them and to uh, you know, respect what they provide for me, for us. And um, those thoughts and internalizations have changed. I have, and I think everybody does evolve, but um, so, but mine initially, and I've often thought this, and maybe I can attribute it to my mother, my dad both, but my mom would be one that enjoyed. You could see that she enjoyed being outside with chickens. And so, and she, so she'd take us as little kids into the chicken house and we'd collect eggs. We'd break them and she'd tell us not to and she'd teach us not to and how not to. And, but so, but she enjoyed that. And then I think I realized that I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being around calves. I enjoyed being, uh, around pigs and and uh um so i i think it's it, it's uh, an appreciation but it's there is some real enjoyment um some satisfaction um with that thanks Dale. i think that's beautiful i have often tried to become an animal person and i hope to get there but the reality is just like it's so scarce in terms of our interaction with them and so yeah. We really appreciate you having on, you know, having you on the show to like unveil what this appreciation really means and why we should appreciate it in general. So um, we're so excited to go into that. So now we'll move into the portion of the episode where we can get into the actual product that we're yeah. consuming as consumers, which is pork. Um, so we're going to be speaking interchangeably between pig and pork in general, depending on where we are in the life cycle of the product. 
Um, but Dale, just to kick us off, I think it'd be really useful if you could give us an overview of where pork comes from, meaning where are pigs typically grown? And I think we can focus on the US given that I'm imagining that's the majority of your work. Um, and I, I'd also love to hear, you know, we hear a lot about like the corn ballot and, and just like what influences the geography of where a lot of these pig farms are. There's obviously where pig farms are in the United States and even in Canada, Mexico, um, and throughout the world, uh, there is a, an evolution of these. And we use this term industries. We use beef industries. We use dairy industry, egg. Um, but we also say pork industry. And, and what it means is the system. How did, how did this food system come about over time? And so there were various influences as well as changing demographics. Our human population had driven that, where the people are at, okay? And so um, you can, can, I go through about a day or two talking about this with students, this history and how it's influenced. Um, at one time, for example, Cincinnati, Ohio, this was before the West was really settled. Cincinnati, Ohio was known as Porkopolis. The name of the city was Porkopolis. And why? Well, because it was the most developed and there was the there was people, people that said, we want to have pig farms around us. We want to take pigs and turn it into pork. And then we want to distribute it. We want to send it back to the East Coast. But we also want to feed this part of the country. And so some very ingenious people developed the processing plants. We back then called them slaughter plants. And the word meant to take pigs and process them into pork. And so that was Cincinnati. But then, then the corn and the cropping systems began to develop in what we call the central part of our country. Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, and crop production excelled. The, the knowledge followed it, and John Deere came um, and built their plants in Iowa, and so that moved west, and so now we see Iowa as the center or the most populous state when it comes to number of pigs, and it's because there's resources there. There are corn, uh, there's the, you know, and then um, soybeans. And so the feedstuffs are there. But then they also recognized that they were now in the central part of this, the country and California grew to a point where right now we talk about California consuming 15% of the pork we produce in the US. And so we sit here in Michigan and we are very much influenced with what the consumer in California thinks because there is pig, pigs that are raised in Michigan where the pork is processed in Indiana and ends up in California. So the system is now, it's not regional, it's, it, it is countrywide, but the centralization of Iowa, Nebraska led to that um, development. Now, then we can go into the history and we can talk about, well, why did it grow in, in North Carolina? That's a whole different story. It's really interesting to go through and, and talk about it. But in brief, there was a time where all of the small farmers, um, they were on small acreages, raised tobacco. And then the tobacco industry, with our objection to it, our concerns about health, went down. I mean, and so the opportunity to make a living was lost. 
And so then the state of California said, well, we are, excuse me, not California, North Carolina said, we can raise pigs. And so then we have a system of these farmers um, putting up a building and saying, I'll raise pigs for a set price. I will be a contract grower. And there's contract growing in vegetables, there's contract growing in fruits. And so it got into turkeys um, and then into pork. And there's even contract growers of um, dairy heifer calves and things like that. So contracting is now part of the economic system. But then that led to the growth of the swine industry in, in North Carolina. And that, that growth has slowed as we realize, well, is North Carolina the right place for it? Do they have the water resources? Do they have the land resources? And we begin to talk about environmental sustainability. And that's been on our radar in the last 10, 15 years. And so we start to talk about the trade-offs. And so we still have produ production in North Carolina. We still have production in Pennsylvania. Um, but the the you know more of it is in the central part of our country because of the open spaces, the land base, the availability for crops, and the ability to move that product in different directions. Thanks, Dow. That's so helpful. So now we have kind of a general lay of the land. We can start framing where you know these pigs are being raised. What I'd love for us to do now is we can start transitioning into the first life cycle stage of a pig, which is yeah. on farm. So regardless of that's North Carolina, Iowa, you name it, Michigan, I'm wondering if you can take us through kind of like the life cycle from starting from a piglet to harvesting and you know, what does that look like? And then I'm sure, you know, Ryan will chime in uh, just with his experience in ag, but um, yeah. And like, especially shedding light on like timeline and things like that, just so we can start grasping. Sure. So we'll start at the beginning. Um, sow and boar, um, we need both obviously, um, and the swine production, the modern, and I'll use the term, two terms, I'll use the term modern, and I'll use, sometimes you'll hear me say intensive. Intensive just means we're using all of the knowledge, uh, the development of uh, new technologies, and we're incorporating them to make the system efficient. And, and that's a reality. That's what's influenced on all of our lives. Um, I mean, we're, we're working towards doing things more efficiently at less cost. So there is the economic sustainability that's part of it. So with that intensity, we will take a, a sow or a female and 95% of the pigs we consume in the U.S. are products or result of artificial insemination. It's a fact, about 95, right? It's over 90. And yeah. I have to ask, like, sorry, but what does that mean? That means that we are taking, um, there's a there's a procedure, it's, it's a process where we will collect semen from the boars, collect it manually, human, and then that semen is preserved, and then it is taken to farms where the females reside, and, and using a um, a catheter, it's sometimes called a catheter or spirette. It's a, it's a, it's been developed, manufactured, 
where we can, and it's not hard to do, we can thread that into the cervix, through the vagina, into the cervix of the sow, and deposit that semen at an appropriate time, and we will get better reproductive numbers as far as number of born alive, consistency of, of reproduction in that sow by using artificial insemination. Um, so it's, it's one of those cases where um, we have become, we've learned that we're more efficient than letting the sow and boar in the wild mate. They do successfully reproduce, but not with the potential of uh, the sow reproducing 2.2 times a year. And so in farming, we have a female giving birth to offspring about 2.2 times a year. And so that sow then will be pregnant for about 115 days. The old farm adage was three months, three weeks, three days. And so that's the gestation or pregnancy of a sow. She gives birth to a litter. We call that process farrowing. It's unique to swine. We say the sow farrows, and it means give birth. And uh, then that uh, in normal production, that litter will nurse, that sow will lactate for about 21 days. Those piglets will be weaned. They'll start consuming feed at about 14 days of life. So they're in the sow's feeder. They're being provided a little feed in a pan off to the side. And then, then those pigs, they will take off on that feed. And by five months to six months of age, they will have um, lived a life and weigh about 270 to 300 pounds. And they will go to harvest. And so um, they are one of the most efficient animals as far as growing rapidly, con converting feedstuffs to product. And uh, so it's not a long life for the market pig. Now the female, on the other hand, she will reside on that farm for two to three years, give birth to about six, on average, five, six litters in her lifetime, raise them. And uh, then um, she will uh, go on as well and uh, go if not um, if if not having to and this is a whole other topic um, not all sows will go to market the majority of them do some of them will break a leg some of them will be injured some of them um, have to be euthanized on the farm we call that and I, I teach farm farmers this and we talk about it we call that normal mortality I mean it's happening on every farm not all animals live to a ripe old age or um, live to the point where they're going to be sent to harvest. So the pig, that, that, that's, in, that's a relatively short time. Um, and, uh, and the males on the other end, the, the boars, uh, like, like the sows, three, four years. Now, let me um, say that's to produce pork. That, that's the, the part of what we do to produce pork. Now, there are a few other farms located all around us um, that we call grandparent and great-grandparent farms. And those are where the breeding stock and the genetics are, are maintained and selected for. And so they're creating the moms and the dads. Uh, when I say creating, they're generating, they're breeding those 
to make those possible. And so there is the, the genetic selection and um, that's taking place on farms. And that's where a student would go to college and, and major in uh, animal genetics and go on and facilitate uh, the uh, improvement of these animals. And just to just to clarify on that last note there, Dale, with the grandparent farms, they're basically selecting, they're basically going through the process of selecting strong genes from those litters and basically just continuously improving the the pig or the genetics that they're dealing with on a yearly basis, pretty much, right? Their their main goal is stronger, better, more efficient, um, healthier pig and keep on just continuously improving. Whereas the feeder pig is the one where we're just production, we're reading back and production. being bred, uh, bred and fed, Ryan, to become pork. Got it, got it. Yeah. And then to double down on that question, this system that we're talking about right now is the conventional method of producing pork, correct? Because we're talking meaning of... modern or commercial. Right. It's the majority. It's the majority the of pork production. Portion. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Got that it. flows through our retail system, mm -hmm. comes into all of our uh, larger, even our smaller stores. Um, uh, the you know uh, there will be distribution of of pork, what we call primal, like getting a whole hind limb and then processing that by a small butcher shop. A number of these butcher shops still exist in our our metro areas, our, our communities, even small communities have local butcher shops yet. And so not all pork goes through these larger plants. Some of it is niche. Some of it's what we call boutique, or it's, 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 um, it's got some characteristics or attributes that we're trying, or farmers trying to um, market gain some popularity for it and, and earn an income and a living by doing that. And so your experiences, Ryan, a little bit we vis uh, visited are more along that line. Those are very good and viable systems and they produce, like I say, pork with some different attributes that appeal to consumers. Very much part of it. So when I was talking about the, the, the like you say, conventional or modern or more intensive systems, um, that's uh, that's how they are. That's the life of a pig, or the, the the lifetime of a pig. Perfect. That's that's great to like kind of delineate that to see like the yep. specialty market and or the just standard get the food out to like the masses that yep. market that you know we really want to talk about here because that's that's the huge percentage there, right? Yep. And I had one more one more follow up on kind of our discussion here with the the two different operations back to the feeding operation um just on the input side so we're talking five to six months that you were mentioning there for for a second with um you know bringing those piglets up to you know into feeder pigs which is that production pig that's going to be um sent to the, the processing facility and and put on the shelf as a, a pork chop or ground pork uh what have you so my question is on that note, because I'm not really too familiar with that system, what types of, you talked about a little bit with like fiber and some of the studies you've done with extension, what type of inputs feed 
um, medical, things like that are going into it to really optimize for this five month, um, you know, sprint basically. And what's going into it obviously is feed first and foremost. For sure. And so we in the U S are, are, are blessed or privileged to have uh, some of the most fertile land in the, in the world. And so we raise a lot of corn and we raise soybean. Those are the two primary. And, and what we feed livestock is actually a byproduct from soybean. It is the corn. And so we're feeding soybean meal, which is a byproduct from the extraction of oils, which we use in our own system for various purposes, uh, whether it be for cooking or other means, other things we do with oils, uh, lipids in our lives. And so corn soy, the basis for the general or most popular American swine diet. And then there's vitamins, trace minerals, um, much like we take ourselves, supplemental, uh, because they don't, uh, the feedstuffs themselves provide enough, but not for the rapid growth that we've now developed these pigs to experience. Can I ask a question on that? So I'm really curious, there's all, I mean, I think we'll get to the environmental impacts maybe of the feed. Maybe we won't, but there basically are some derived with growing anything, whether it's the crop or, or the animal. Um, what I'm curious if you could speak to, Dale, is the amount of feed that's required to grow the pig in that amount of time, how does that compare to the feed volume needs of a chicken? and maybe a cow, just so we can start to put that into perspective and also consider the short amount of time it takes to raise the pig. Correct. Um, and we talk about in animals in general, we talk about this word efficiency again, but we talk about the animal's ability to convert, convert feed to product. And what we have to be careful is we have to start to talk in terms of nutrients. So it, it would be protein, or we could even go all the way to the level of amino acids because proteins are amino acids. And so you and I and, and our and children require essential amino acids. And so our, our discussion of what is the most efficient system eventually it's not there yet but we'll begin to focus on how do we convert um, feedstuffs to those essential nutrients that we need the nutrients that we need and 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 um, so the pig is between is not as efficient as the bird okay and if you really want to get into super efficiency um, then we, we get to back to the fish and then we are, you know, over to the fish. But even before that, we can talk about rabbit. And, and the rabbit is an amazing converter of in, you know, feedstuffs that we don't use as humans. They can take some roughages and forages and convert it into an excellent protein. And so then we've got broilers and chickens that are next in that, that ability to be efficient then pigs, and then we get up to lamb and beef. And then in between there is um, our out towards beef and, and lamb is the ability of the dairy cow to make protein in the form of milk. And, and so 
um, we talk about that e that conversion efficiency, and and pigs are, are takes about two and a half pounds of feed to make a pound of gain, but that gain is really only about 55-60% protein. And so um, we in, in animal science and in nutrition, we 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 study that, we we look at that, and we're working on helping develop the most sustainable system. Christina, what is really going to be sustainable in our future? What we've done in the past, not necessarily the most sustainable. Where we are today, I tell students this, we're not, we have not arrived. And and, and I challenge you to be more creative, more knowledgeable, and let's develop the best systems that work in the best, in, in, in specific parts of the world, in, in parts of our country. You know, we haven't touched on transportation miles. Maybe we shouldn't be moving all this pork from Michigan to California. You know, so we can talk about that. We can talk about energy use. There's a, a lot of trade-offs that be, that come into this, and you're absolutely right. Efficiency, conversion, feed, how we raise that feed, the cropping systems we're using with that intensity, soil loss, nutrient utilization, um, and the term soil health big term what does that all mean super interesting point there dale with the um when you did that little ranking of you know chicken up to the cow yeah. and just a just kind of like to shine a little light to the listener and to the non-animal ag person i don't know if this is, has anything to do with it but the chicken the pig those are monogastrics which have a different stomach system right similar to humans basically one stomach Yep. And then you have the ruminant animal, which is the lamb, the goat, uh, the and the cat and the cow. And I don't know about rabbits. So we're like talking about ruminant. like we're talking about like these different systems, and you kind of shine the light on the the monogastric that yep. has this more efficient system versus the ruminant. Is that any does that have anything to do with it? Absolutely. It has some of something to do with it because uh the the cattle, the lamb, the sheep are hosting more mi microflora in their intestines. And so they, 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 they consume energy as well. But then biologically, there's, there's limitations, just the conversion of those nutrients that cross uh, the blood into cells. Um, they're, they're less efficient at converting them. And biologically, the rabbit is more efficient or fish. So that, that, that's uh just part of the innateness of these animals. Okay, so I think now we have such a solid understanding and we can like close our eyes and imagine the life cycle of raising a pig. I was gonna say growing a pig. Sometimes I get all my verbiage like mixed up. But um, I think next part of this is learning how the pig gets turned into pork, right? It's so interesting to reflect on how we as consumers don't look at it and call it pig, right? We're like disconnected and I'm sure we've heard all of that. Um, and so I guess we can like close our eyes and okay, it's at the end of the five to six months. I mean, what happens next, right? Who's buying these pigs? Are they getting transported? Where are they being slaughtered? What does that process look like? I'm sure 
might be, get a little bit gruesome here, but clearly with the artificial insemination, we're going down all of these rabbit holes. So <laughs> uh, sparing no details. Um, so there's um, just like in um, a number of different things in our lives with the development of technology, discovery, mechanization, um, and um, systems, development of systems. The same thing is true for harvest uh, and the harvest of uh, animal products. Uh, when we're talking in terms of pork, and it is kind of a unique thing um, why we don't call it pig, but in parts of the world they do. They call it pig meat. And you'll read statistics and and you'll say pig meat consumption in China, for example, they'll use that term in their statistics. We call it pork. Uh, so it might be a little bit of our early development in the US with the European colonization and so forth that that might've come from there. But so anyhow, so when these pigs are market size um, and that, goes back to the consumer, the size, as well as, um, let me let me say um, what I mean by that, first of all, the portion size and the tenderness uh, of the meat products is impacted by age and growth and further growth. So the older they get and the larger they get, then sometimes then the, 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 the pork chop would be too large. And so the consumer would not prefer that. And so for example, in the UK, the preferred pork chop leaves the skin and the subcutaneous fat on it. Um, and they only want a 200 pound pig. Now in the US where we, take the skin off of it at times and we take the bone and we have a boneless pork chop, um, then we want that larger in our restaurants and in our display cases. So that's why we take them a month older and 80 pounds more to 280, 280 pounds. So that, um, that it comes back to consumers and then now these larger packing plants, they try to get a similar product for their consumer chain. So let's say I'm providing retailer A, all the stores, and we call that A. And A says, this is what sells best in our stores. So then they communicate that to the plant. The plant then goes out and buys pigs that meet the, the, that demand. And so then they start to do it by semi-loads and they'll put 160 to 180 pigs on these semis that you may see if you're in the Iowa traveling on Interstate 80, you can't but see one every now and then. And those pigs are being hauled to a plant. They may ride in a truck anywhere from a half hour to even 12 to 14 hours to the plant. And at the plant then they're rested. Um, and that's only been in the last 10 years where we've learned that that's um, better for the pig to rest them, it's better for the product. Um, and so then prior to being um, stunned, 
in some form. It could be an electrical stun. It could be a CO2 stunning, um, which we've read about recently in the in newspaper, where they succumb to the gas and, and they are unconscious, rendered unconscious by that. Um, and uh, the other most common method is the electrical stunning. But death actually occurs by exsanguation, in other words, blood loss. And they, there is a, a job at the plant where they sever the, 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 the artery and the vein in the neck, and then uh, death occurs by blood loss. And then at that point, then, um, the, the animal is uh, put in very hot water. Uh, then they go into the process, hair is removed, and... Then they are eviscerated. All of the internal organs are removed. The head may be removed or it may stay with the carcass until a later portion of the time. And uh, then um, eventually in a matter of minutes, that carcass is put into a blast chilling cooler. And that meat is chilled as fast as possible. Not frozen immediately, but chilled. And then... Um, it could be a matter of six, eight hours or the next day. Then that carcass is sent to where we call the breaking lines, where the, the carcass is broken into um, either portions, which are called primals, and then those are shipped out to other plants, um, processing plants where they may be making ham. The bellies may be sent to a bacon-making plant. In some cases, that processing is done right next door and so it's not transported and then those products are packaged um, boxed and delivered uh, to various retailers or distributors that was a great process run through there dale crazy to hear that though with the um like there's a separate plant for post primal right oh, like, yes. which is which is wild because if you do if you're doing like on farm butchering butchering or the small small butcher local butcher or um, meat plant that that you typically would see maybe back in the day or in a more like country style living place they're doing it all in that one spot whereas this when you're talking you're back you're back to the efficiency here basically with that that's why they have that correct correct but also too Ryan um and I, and I and I've done this, and I've worked with the, the local butcher shops, and I've I have worked with uh, uh, families that own those butcher shops, okay, and I have advised other families that say I would like to raise four hogs and then take them to the butcher shop and have them processed the way I would like to. That it, that opportunity is there, and it's good, and it but it, and it gives the the people that want that pork some other opportunities to do things differently. For example, large plants don't do the organic or do a, um, and one of the things we had had on our list that we might talk about, for example, was the curing process for hams and for bacon. Some of those will use a uh, salt with a, a nitrate and you could go organic and just use celery juices and things like that. So I've worked with organic plants. It gives you some more opportunities uh, to, to have the cuts and the product developed and processed the way you want to. Those are good. It's hard sometimes for a small plant to stay in business and earn a living 
in a small community if it's not enough demand for their services. So that's a challenge for them. Yeah, I'm wondering if if we could go deeper into the butchering. Sure. Um, so when we think about a pig and the body of a pig, this is this sounds so morbid, but it's obviously the reality of like what we're talking about. Um, you know, I'm wondering if you could go into like what what are some pork products and what part of the animal are they coming from? It may be second nature to some people, but I know for me, like we're talking about pork chop, like I just, I, I would love to visualize where everything is coming from there. And also on top of that, like what is the highest demand, yeah, pork product and tying it back to the part of the body. And, and the reason I laugh is um, there's numerous pork products and different parts in the world, we cut the pig up differently. Well, we cut the lamb up differently, cut uh, the chicken up differently. But generally in the U.S., um, the uh, most popular pork products um, actually come from the central center part between the shoulder and the hind hip, okay? And so there, that's the region where we get, um, at the lower level, we get what we call the belly, and that's then it's it's all soft. There's no bone, and that's where they make the bacon. And so bacon is really popular in the U.S. Um, and uh, so that's where the belly comes. As we go up towards the spine, then we've got ribs, and ribs is a real seasonal food in the U.S. Um, but uh, barbecuing ribs, um, and uh, and so that's where they come from. And then as we get near the spine, then we have what they call um, two muscles that run parallel with each other and one gets bigger at one near the shoulder and the other gets bigger as we go towards the hip then what we do is we slice the carcass from shoulder to hip and those all become chops whether they be a rib chop they be a pork chop in general or a loin chop and, and that large longissimus dorsi muscle is what we really prefer as a chop. Most people um, will prefer that. Some people will leave that separate and they'll make a loin roast out of it. And that's a real popular roast, pork roast. And then pulled pork sandwiches, very, very popular. That comes when they harvest the shoulder and they, they separate it into two cuts, the Boston butt, is one of them and then um uh the other half the upper shoulder um they will send those out as box shoulder cuts and then they cook them long and slow and then they shred all that meat and they make the pulled pork sandwiches out of that shoulder now the hind limb then goes into roast as well but then they shape it and they'll make the hams the hams yeah now we send, we export fresh hind limbs to various parts of the world because they just want to make more pulled pork or small, thinly sliced pork, depending on where you're at in the world. But the U.S. consumer has, um, you know, preferred the ham. One more question on that to wrap this part up. Yep. Well, first of all, if my dad is listening, I know he's just going to be drooling listening to all of this. Um, huge barbecue person. So yeah. shout out there. 
on top of that, is there any part of the animal that is wasted the most? Or is it a highly, highly, highly efficient slaughter from that, or butcher, I should say? Yeah, you can say slaughter. Uh, I mean, slaughter it, it raises a point. We have sensitivities about the use. Yeah, it's a brutal term maybe to some, um, but historically it meant this. It meant processing, it meant harvesting. And so I, I use them exchangeably and I, and I, you know, and I ask students if that does have that connotation, whatever. But we, there's this old adage, and it is quite true uh, with the pig that we harvest everything but the squeal. And you've heard that. It, it's not totally true, and it depends on the plant. So not every plant has a contract to harvest pharmaceuticals, let's say porcine insulin. Most insulin is synthetic nowadays for humans, but there was a lot of times where they would harvest insulin or they would harvest other hormones in that process. They'd select and they would have uh, individuals locating and removing glands and then they would extract various um, um, hormones. They will do that with some of the enzymes as well that would be located in the 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 lymph node or excuse me in the intestinal system not from the lymph nodes but um but in the intestinal system will harvest other enzymes and so um the intestines themselves cleaned harvested packaged sent in various places used to make the lining of bologna and so forth the same is true for lamb intestines they're, they're smaller size and so Organ meats have preferences, whether it be the heart, the liver, um, the even the tongue um, is is consumed in various parts. I I like to have tongue, and um, and I and I I don't I enjoy heart when it's prepared well, chilled and served with a nice mustard on a cracker. That that's a delicacy for me. That's I'm like your dad. My mouth would water. Um, and so we utilize um, a, a large amount of the, the pig, the carcass is consumable. But then there's a, just a, a number of byproducts that are inedibles that are retained, including um, the bones, the hide, um, even the hair can be made into brushes and, and used for different purposes. Um, like we were talking about with soybean oil, um, the, the lipid, and, and we refer to it as lard, is rendered, and that oil is used um, in, in a number of manufacturing process to lubricate machines. Uh, for a long time, it was used in the manufacturing of car tires. They would lubricate the machines with lard, which is coming from the swine industry. Um, and so uh, some of it is used in the form, in the, in the um, development and manufacturing of linoleum, which goes on our floors. And so it finds its way into other amenities that we enjoy in life. And we don't know that. I mean, uh, and, and, and then it ebbs and flows. Those manufacturers say, well, yeah, I can get this now for this price. I'm going to use it. But tomorrow I might use beef tallow, or I might go back to using some other lipid that I can source. And so it's not always constant, 
but it, it's the marketplace. It's the way we do so much of our, our product development in various ways in the country. The point is um, the, the food system and the harvest system, uh, there is incentive both socially and economically not to waste. Yep. And the rest goes into sausage. It correct. Yep. That's how the sausage is made. <laughs> gotcha. Cool. That's a that's a great uh I guess understanding for the consumer that it's not just bacon and no. chops, right? Yeah. Um, which is which is cool to know because when you're at the grocery store, all you think about is bacon and chops. And when it comes to beef, all you think about is steaks and and burgers, right? But there's a lot more to an animal than just that. And maybe that's even something that the consumer can take away of like, you know, we've maximized this system to your point, like we were talking about earlier, to really produce a chop that is, you know, marketable to the US consumer, where the consumer may be able to start to understand some different methods of, of cooking or different recipes, things like that of consumption, that might, you know, encourage like a, a guanciale or something, you know, funky that you've Absolutely. never eaten before tongue, which is bomb, by the way really second that on 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 your behalf there i'm a yeah. huge tongue guy but nobody you tell somebody tongue and they're like tongue ew that's disgusting yeah but maybe it's just a consumer education piece or maybe it's like it a is. cooking thing it, it really is. is yeah and I, th I think that kind of segues into like maybe in closing here with like something for the consumer i mean we just touched on like consumer education with with the the general like consumption of pork but what's something that you would want the consumer to really get a takeaway from this podcast or from some of the work you've done? Like what's something you would want to tell the consumer? As a whole, we are so privileged to live in a country where we have such high standards for food safety and food quality. And uh, so I, I think taking becoming knowledgeable, knowing how to care for your food in your home and, you know, and preserving it uh, short term in the refrigerator or freezing. That's important. Um, I, I think um, that uh, questions about safety and quality um, are, are, are not fears. They, they, they really are not. We are so, we are so blessed and what about that? And so then I think, I think, and, and people kind of look at me kind of, um, sometimes farmers when I say, have fun. And so I, I over my lifetime, um, I just, uh, I, I think, learn, have fun learning about where your food comes from. Have fun exploring your ethic. Have fun exploring your ethic. And if that says, I really want pigs that are, are, are raised outdoors. That's cool. But then realize then where that can be done and who's doing it well. And, and then I need to learn, well, what does well mean? Um, well means um, where um, then animals are being well taken care of because outdoors sometimes can lead to sunburn sometimes can lead to internal parasites. And so how is that farm managing those concerns that come with outdoor production? So there are trade-offs. So I think consumers don't, don't be, uh, try to learn a new trade-off once in a while. Try to learn 
why that's happening. Investigate and enter into those discussions. I, I really, I'm an advocate. I tell students this, don't be afraid to cross a boundary once in a while to, to go investigate why that is. And so as far as port goes, um, you know, we didn't talk a lot about it. One of my um, real pleasures is to talk about environmental sustainability. Um, and, and so I, I, I think we need to continue to investigate and learn more about how we raise this amount of pork, raise this amount of beef. Should we be raising that amount? I'm not advocating for none. I'm just saying, let's find the balance with our population, with our, our, our um, food distribution systems. So, so much uh, to be learned. And so I think every consumers ought to keep learning. Totally agree. I think that's why we had had the episode and we're lucky to have you on, man. And uh, yeah, as it pertains to the environmental side, and I mean, we, I know we just kind of closed it up there, but is there any closing points on the environmental sustainability side that you were maybe thinking about that we didn't, we didn't touch on today? Because it's a very good point, you know, like your backyard pig or your pastured pork production might not be as scalable. I mean, five months in a pastured pork situation, you don't have a market pig, right? Right. So maybe you're out there a lot longer. What are, what are some like environmental levers or areas? We don't have to get too, too deep in the weeds, but what are some areas that you really would like to see improve over time or, or be, you know, more attention given towards those? Yep. I think any farmer, and I'll just speak for the farmers this time, has to ask them question, am I accumulating manure nutrients in some at some point whether i'm accumulating them in the field and so or i'm accumulating them next to my barn wherever they're accumulating and not being reutilized in a crop production system then we have greater risk of them moving in surface water or downward into groundwater and so we we have to have a animal production system that avoids those accumulations. And so it's to think like that, to look at my farm and say, am I doing that simply? Or am I appropriately putting the amounts on to raise this crop and not letting it move in any direction? So it's pretty, that that's one of them. And we, we can get into air concerns, but that's a whole nother topic, Ryan. Okay, Dale, thank you so much for this conversation. We have learned so much from you. We're excited to get hopefully a couple of resources that we'll drop in the show notes. But other than that, it's been a pleasure. And yeah, we're so grateful for spending this time with you. My pleasure. It's been enjoyment. That concludes our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening, and we encourage you to rate this podcast so that we can learn how and where we can improve for future sessions. I'd like to close by sharing one of my favorite quotes that resides on the East Side Gallery on the Berlin Wall. Many small people who in many small places do many small things that can alter the face of the world. <laughs>